It's good when we come together and pray, isn't it? If you will, open your Bibles tonight. We don't have a uh, lot of time, but we will spend some time tonight looking at, continuing with this question about sin. Last week, we, we learned that, um, that we have had three balls thrown at us, and we've swung and missed each one of them, that we are sinners three times over. That we are sinners in our actions, that we are sinners in our attitudes, that we are sinners by nature. Three strikes, we are out. But by the grace of God, we are not out. God sent His Son and died for us, taking taking our place so that we could be made righteous and be with Him forever. I want to ask this question tonight, where did sin come from? Where did sin come from? How did it come into the universe? So I'll quickly run through these. I'm hoping to answer three questions tonight. Um, Let me just start off, though, before I get to the question. It would be wrong for us to assume or to say that God caused sin, that, that God has sinned, because God cannot sin. Multiple places tell us that. It would also be wrong for us to say that, well, then there's this opposite equal force in the universe that if God is the great force for good that there is also this great force for evil and they are dueling forces in the universe that would be dualism and that's not right either however it would be right and and you need to get this we've talked about this this is one that that really crashes on the thoughts of church people It is right for us to understand that while God has not sinned himself and not forced anyone to sin, yet he has used sin to bring about his ultimate purpose. He doesn't delight in sin. He uses uses sin in such a way that People choose to sin in and of their own willing choice. It's what Daniel 4.35 means when it says that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We don't have the right to say to God, you can't do it that way. What are you doing? Because we are not the Creator. He is. So let's look tonight at the specific event where sin entered the universe. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is probably the most overlooked chapter in the Bible. There's a lot of people that are trying to figure out what do I need to be saved from? You're, you're telling me that Jesus saves. But wh- why do I need to be saved? Because they've missed Genesis 3. If you miss Genesis 3, then you miss the whole thing. Where did this sin come from? Let me just read this, the first 19 verses of chapter 3, and then we'll ask three questions. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired uh, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Three questions that are at the very heart of sin. At the original sin, as well as the sin in your life and mine today. Three questions. One is, what is true? What is true? That's at the heart of sin. What is true? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. If you turn back just one chapter... This is the the account of God giving them instructions, Adam and Eve. Verse 16 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then you go forward into chapter 3, verse 4, and you find the serpent who comes in, and he on the heels of God telling them, if you eat of this one particular tree, you will surely die, the serpent comes in and says, you, you're not going to die. For God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So the question at the heart of sin, the first question is, what is true? God says we're going to die The serpent says we won't die. Who's telling the truth? 
Eve decided to doubt the accuracy of God's word and experiment. Act on her doubt to see whether God spoke truthfully. So she took, and it says that when she saw that it was good for food and it was desirable to make one wise, that she took it and she ate. And she gave to her husband and he also ate. And it was in that moment that she came to that question, what's true? Is God telling the truth or is the serpent telling the truth? This is how Satan tempts us also. He starts with getting us to doubt God's word. Then he gets us to act on it. In the case of Eve here with her husband Adam, it appears at least at first as though the serpent was telling the truth. Because God said, you'll die. She takes a bite and she doesn't die. At least not visibly. But it was in that moment when she took a bite and when Adam took a bite that they were launched into this process of physically dying. It was at that moment when they began to head toward physical death. And it was also in that very moment that they died spiritually. That they were cut off from the relationship with God. For the rest of the story tells us that they are cast out of the garden. The garden was the place where they fellowshiped with God. They're cast out and so they did in more ways than one, die that day. Just as Satan came in in the form of the serpent and tempts her to, to, whether or not to believe who's telling the truth, is God telling the truth, or am I telling you the truth, he will do the same thing with us. And there are some questions that he would have us ask about the Word of God. Is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? Did Jesus really go away to prepare a place for those who would follow after him? Is he really going to come again? And and you may sit here tonight and many of you would say, yes, those, those are settled questions. There is a heaven. There is a hell. He has gone away. He is coming again. But there's a world out there that, that thinks you are crazy if you believe that. Because they don't have the mind of Christ. They have the mind of this world. They are following the prince of the power of the air. And he wants you to doubt if Jesus is coming again. And I would encourage you tonight, in just just a few minutes, don't doubt the truth of God's word. What is true? God's word is true. The second question at the heart of this is not only what is true, but what is right. In Genesis 2.17 again, God says to them of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God had declared that it was right, it was morally right for them not to eat of that one tree. But the serpent comes in Genesis 3.5 and he suggests or implies that that's not right. I mean, who's, who's God to say that's morally right? I mean, God knows that when you eat it, you'll become like Him. And He suggests that God is not the one who determines right from wrong, 
God just wants to keep something good from you. Again, getting you to doubt the Word of God. Eve decided in that moment to trust her own judgment of what was right. She decided to be her own judge of what was good for her. Rather than allowing God's Word to define right and wrong, she determined that who was God to, to say what was good or right for her? In Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Can't you hear the rationalization? God says this is not right, but... I mean, look at it. It's, it's obviously good for food. I mean, the serpent told me that. And look, look at how beautiful it is. Beyond that, the serpent says it will make me wise. So I don't know who I can trust. It's more than a question of who's telling the truth. It's a question of who determines right from wrong. Satan tries to convince us that what God has clearly said is wrong is really right. He also questions God's intentions. He paints the picture of God withholding good from us because he is stingy and wants to hoard the best of things for himself. You can just hear the serpent as he's talking with Eve saying, No, 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 no. Seek. God just knows that if you eat this, you're going to be like him. And he wants to keep that for himself. Are you really going to listen to that guy? Take and eat. He pictures God as just this cosmic police officer in the sky who just wants to pull you over at any chance he can get. And you and I have a question to ask ourselves when we are faced with temptation, what's right? Is the temptation right or is what God says in His Word right? So what is true? What is right? The third question that I want to answer tonight is, who am I? This is at the heart of sin. When you are tempted, this is the third question at the heart of sin. Who am I? The right answer was that in the case of Adam and Eve, and in our case, they were the creation of a loving, holy, sovereign God. Yet they didn't stay in their place. Because they listened to the voice of the serpent. And the serpent said, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. And just as he had done, they also wanted to be like him. They wanted to take his place. They were made, and you and I have been made, to be dependent on God, subordinate to God. This is, hear me on this, this is one of the greatest problems with humanity in our day, authority. 
Everyone thinks they are their own boss. That they are entitled. But every one of us have been made by a supreme God. He's God. We are not. We are subordinate to Him and to the structures that He has put in place. They yielded to the temptation to be like God, the same thing that the devil yielded to when he attempted to put himself where only God belongs. He was cast out of heaven trying to usurp the throne of God. Turn, if you will, this is the last verse I'll ask you to turn to. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. This deals directly with this question, who am I? Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what they said when they decided to do things their way. In that moment, Eve said, God has no right over my life. God has no authority over my life. I will do what I want to do. Adam said the same thing. You and I, before we get too holy, you and I have said the same thing. You may not have actually had that conversation, but every time you choose to do things your way and not submit to God's way, you are saying, no, God. I heard Al Mulder share this when I was at the conference in Jacksonville. There was a study recently done, um, a, a very large study done, of 18 to 29-year-olds. Um, 18 to 29-year-olds to determine what type of, how they viewed religion. What kind of faith they had. And they were asked a series of question, questions, and it all came down to this. It was summed up in three words, that the faith of 18 to 29-year-olds can be summed up in three words. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Now, let me break that down. Moralistic. They believe, basically, that God wants them to be good. God wants me to be good. God wants me to be nice. He wants me to be kind. He doesn't want me to lie. He doesn't want me to murder. Whatever standard of good they see, they say, basically, God doesn't want me to be bad. God wants me to be good, moral. Therapeutic. They have been sold a lie telling them that God wants them happy. They live in a country that is filled with, with people that are spoiled and rich and that are building their own kingdoms here, that are not sinking their treasure in heaven, but they're building their own kingdoms here. And they have bought into this lie that God wants them happy, therapeutic, that they come to God for one reason and one reason mostly alone. Is that when something's going wrong in their life, they come to God because he'll make them happy. It's the popular preaching. And the last word, deism. 
Deism means that there is a God, but He's really out there, and He really has no involvement in my life, that He really has no authority over my life, that He's, he's just God, He's just maybe, maybe He's created, maybe He's put things into, into place, but He has no authority to judge at all. God wants me to be good, God wants me to be happy, and in the end... Doesn't really matter because I'm not going to answer to him anyway. I left out one part of this survey. These 18 to 29 year olds were Southern Baptists. They're coming out of our churches. And I would ask you the question where are they getting their theology? And the answer is they're seeing it in us. See, hear me on this church. Today is not the day for us to treat the cause of Christ and His church as if it is an option among many things. It is not the day to treat the church as if it exists for me. We live in a day with 6.8 billion people on this planet where almost 2 billion of those people on this planet have no access, no knowledge to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are raising a generation that thinks it's about them. God help us. God help us see His mission. God help us see our sin. God help us turn from our sin. God help us trust Him, depend on Him, go for Him. If it costs us our lives, so be it. John Newton, this is, I'll close with this. I know Ethan's raring to get in here for car practice. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was um, the, uh, he was a captain on a, on a slave ship. And um, for, for years, he had packed five, six hundred slaves from Africa on these ships. They were put into spaces that were four feet tall by 18 inches, 18 inch cube. And they were, they were put on that boat in shackles inside those, those spaces, spaces for three weeks on that ship. Many times, when they got to their port... A third of them was all that was left. As many as two-thirds of them died on the way over. He came to the place where he saw the gospel and he understood who he was, the sinner that he was, and he understood what God had done for him. And he was delivered from that and he walked away from that and he spent the rest of his life trying to live for the glory of God. And toward the end of his life, when he's writing his story, after he had lost his sight... He said these words. I remember two things. I am a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. I pray that would be our mindset, our heart, every single day. Let's pray together. God, thank you, God, for all that you do.
God, forgive us for the times that we sell it so short. God, forgive us for making it about us. God, I pray that you would grab a hold of our lives. And God, that we would not be able to to get away from the fact that our lives are not our own. God, that we would run from sin. That we would repent of sin. And God, that we would spend our days, however many we have, living passionately for the cause of your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great night.